Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So physical intimacy in a treasured marriage. What the Bible talks about sex? Well, you do, if you do a quick online search, top problems in marriage, you'll find that intimacy, sex is near the top. It's axiomatic if this dimension of marriage is not healthy, there's little chance that the marriage as a whole will be happy. Consequently, it is imperative that a conscious effort be made to establish a sound basis for communication and agreement in marriage concerning intimacy. As God regulates the institution of marriage, that regulation certainly applies to the sexual dimension as well as other aspects. Using God's Word and while understanding that God's Word is helpful in all areas, we may not be able to find out everything you wanted to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask, referring to that book of the same title. Uh, many thinkers today believe that uh, you can learn virtually nothing about intimacy from the Bible because it is so hopelessly out of date. Uninformed people actually consider that Victorian or Puritanical views uh, of human sexuality forbid delighting in God's gift to married couples, but this is not true. In fact, the Bible recognizes sex as part of God's wonderful design and delight for those who treasure Him and their spouse much more than untaught people realize. Scripture has quite a lot to say about the subject, starting in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 22, be fruitful and multiply. God's law has numerous commands that govern sexual behavior, and you find in Revelation that sexually immoral people will be cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 21, verse 8. So beginning and end, this topic is addressed. There's simply no way to preach the whole counsel of God without mentioning human sexuality. The scriptures tell us clearly that the joyous expression of love between a husband and wife is part of God's plan. It is, as the writer of Hebrews emphasizes, undefiled, not sinful, not soiled. It is a place of great honor in marriage. Genesis 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And you notice the latter part of this section says, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. The Hebrew word naked actually means laid bare, nothing hidden. The absence of self-consciousness. The original couple had maximum freedom with each other. They were unhindered emotionally, allowing them to be uninhibited physically. The Lord reports that they were not ashamed. Without joy of the marriage bed continually fulfilling to both Adam and Eve, without that freedom from restraint, God would not have made the pronouncement that it is good and even very good. So let's talk about some basic biblical truths about sex. First, sex was designed and created by God and is very good, Genesis 1.31. It's not dirty or part of the curse there are some people who believe that. Some people were raised with that notion. That is not the case. Number two, 
Sex was designed by God for the pleasure of men and women in a monogamous covenantal relationship. And you see that in Proverbs 5, verse 15. Proverbs 5, 15. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth like a loving doe and a graceful mountain goat. And you have to remember, we're talking about an agrarian society, okay? Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated, intoxicated, almost inebriated with her love. And again, Song of Solomon, chapter 2 and verse 3. Song of Solomon, chapter 2 and verse 3. Let's see here. What are we doing here? There we are. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight, sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me to his banqueting hall. His banner over me is... Brought me to his banqueting tables, banner over me. You all sang that as a kid, right? It's about the joyous celebration of love between a husband and a wife. While a lot of people in the past have used Song of Solomon solely as an analogy of Christ in the church, it is so beautifully depictive of the love and intimacy between a husband and a wife. Number three. Number three, sex was designed by God to beautifully bond husband and wife to each other. Number four, sex has the added benefit within a marital bond resulting of, in children in most cases. It's not the only reason for sex and does not have to end once children are born. Number five, Mutually satisfying marital relations can change and continue through a couple's life together. There's a difference between the passionate and amorous activities of a newlywed couple in their 20s and that of a couple in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. It can indeed continue. Six, sexual relations outside of God's design are prohibited in Scripture and have deleterious consequences. All forms of pornography, self-pleasure, adultery, or any other immorality must be removed from our relationships. Failure to do so will not only result in relationship pain, but it can result in the total loss of the relationship. It will not honor or display the glory and design of God. By the way, you'll notice that while many times I'll ask people to participate and ask questions or answer questions, I really won't be doing that in this lesson. Uh, I put enough people on the spot without doing it in this topic. So yeah, the Bible does talk about sex, but not like the world. How do we understand the Song of Solomon? Now, I bring this up because within our lifetime, there have been leaders within the Christian church who have gone way overboard in this topic and have actually done violence to the text and to God's people. 
And again, if you want to know more details and specifics, I'm happy to discuss it after the class. It's important to note that the language scripture employs when dealing with the physical relationship between husband and wife is always careful, often plain, sometimes poetic, usually delicate, frequently muted by euphemisms, but never fully explicit. There is no hint of sophomoric lewdness in the Bible, even when the prophet's clear purpose is to shock. There's a passage in Ezekiel that is comparing Israel's spiritual adultery with bestiality. But the only purpose there is to shock people into realizing how harmful spiritual adultery is. The message of Scripture regarding sex is simple and consistent throughout. Total physical intimacy within marriage is pure and ought to be enjoyed. Hebrews 13.4 The marriage bed is undefiled. But remove the marriage covenant from the quote uh, quotation, the equation, and all sexual activity, including that which only occurs in the mind, is nothing but fornication of any type and is especially defiling and shameful, so much so that even talking about it could be absolutely inappropriate. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 12. Apparently, some have thought that the shortest rule to, uh, shortest route to relevance within Christian ministry, is for the preacher to talk about sex in garishly explicit terms during the Sunday morning service. Some people think that if you can shock parishioners with crude words and sophomore humor, so much the better. The defenders of this trend solemnly inform us that without such a strategy, it is well nigh impossible to connect with today's culture. And whenever that's said, we all have to remember that we're talking about a fallen culture. Sermons about sex became a bigger fad in the evangelical world than the prayer of Jabez was. Everywhere, it seemed, churches were featuring special services on the subject. Some of them advertised with suggestive billboards. Matter of fact, there was one here in Evansville. And I actually called up the church, I spoke to the pastor, and I said, Brother, this is not good. You need to take it down. By God's grace, he did. And I'm very thankful for that. Quite a few pastors have earned excessive widespread media coverage by issuing sex challenges over a period of days. And frankly, I don't know how anybody was going to hold people accountable for that. Where there had to be physical acts of intimacy all during that time. Above all, Scripture never stoops to a lurid level of contemporary sex education. The Bible has no counterpart to the Hindu Kama Sutra, an ancient Sanskrit sex manual supposedly transmitted by Hindu deities. Nothing in Scripture gives any vivid how-to instructions regarding the physical relationship within marriage. That includes the Song of Solomon. In fact, Solomon's love poems epitomizes the exact opposite approach. It is, of course, a lengthy poem about courtship and marital love. It is filled with euphemisms and word pictures. Its whole point is gently, subtly, and elegantly to express the emotional and physical intimacy of marital love in language suitable for any audience. 
Such an approach where you superimpose our understanding of human sexuality based on the cultural definition is referred to as eisegesis, where we superimpose our opinions upon Scripture rather than letting Scripture form our thinking using exegesis, out of the text or into the text. Isogesis or exegesis. It's frankly hard to think of a more appalling misuse of Scripture than turning the Song of Solomon into soft porn. When you do that, you alienate the listeners who are sensitive to this matter, and you do not honor God. Song of Solomon is deliberately veiled in poetic euphemisms that are beautifully, well, they're beautiful by any measure. Some of the imagery is fairly obvious. Some of it is highly debatable. In many places, the meaning is indistinct enough to permit a great deal of hermeneutical, hermeneutical, interpretive imagination. And wisdom would seem to teach that here, especially here, that you don't want to go further than the Holy Spirit in the Scripture goes. Again, as you approach Song of Solomon, you need to be careful to not go further than God the Holy Spirit does in the Word. You know, in God's Word, there are instances of sexual immorality. And they're very plain. They're understood. Again, you're you're dealing with primarily, especially in the Old Testament, an agrarian society. People are familiar with how God designed not only man, but farm animals. And so the descriptions are very plain. The sin of David with Bathsheba is very plain. If there's any guessing about what's happening there, it's probably not where our minds might go. Because Scripture is not shy about calling sin, sin. This is a vital point. Let's go back to Song of Solomon. The style of communication between those two lovers beautifully conceals all but the most essential meaning of their love songs in a way that guards the deeply personal and divinely intended privacy of the marriage bed. Song of Solomon is incredibly beautiful because it is so carefully veiled. It's a perfect description of the wonderful, tender, intimate discovery that God designed to take place between a young man and his bride in a place of secrecy. We're not told in vivid terms what all the metaphors mean because the beauty of marital passion is in the eyes of the beholder where it should stay. Now, there are other private body functions and less honorable or unpresentable body parts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We find these mentioned or alluded to at times in Scripture without ever being too specific. We all would be rightly offended if the preacher gave a long, descriptive discourse of how-to instructions in the Sunday morning worship service, especially where there are young people and many unmarried people around where you might inflame passions prematurely. Neither Paul nor any other legitimate church leader in 2,000 years has ever found it necessary or even helpful to use streetwise sex education, not as an evangelistic strategy and certainly not as a means to sanctify 
God's people who are already overwhelmed with the cultural sex talk from a corrupt culture. Adopting to the world's obsession with sex and filthy talk cannot possibly have a sanctifying effect because the strategy itself is unholy. The notion that degenerate subcultures and sexually addicted people cannot be reached without learning to speak their language is an absolute fallacy. The church, you and I, are able to reach, by God's grace, friends and neighbors without speaking corrupt language. Churches baptize and recognize new believers virtually every week. It is neither necessary nor helpful to inject explicit sexual messages into the conversation in order to reach people from such a culture. God draws men and women, boys and girls, to Christ through the gospel. I took a lot of time on that. But I did that because we have a responsibility to respond not only to the culture and equip God's people to know how to respond to the culture, but also to call out error that can exist within the churches. I hope that's been helpful for some of you who have been exposed to that fad within churches. So, how do we approach physical intimacy and treasured marriage? Research indicates that out of 160 hours in a week, the average couple seldom spends more than an hour or two in physical intimacy. But it's what we do within the entire week that determines the quality of that time. First, we approach intimacy within treasured marriages by a positive outlook. A positive outlook on your spouse, your time together. And the covenant relationship that God has brought you into will enable both to have a full, enriched marital life in every aspect, not just intimacy. Have you ever thanked God for the indescribable, incredible gift of sex? One of my early mentors, matter of fact, the man who baptized me as a believer, helped to prepare young couples for marriage by encouraging them on their wedding night to pray before they engaged in their first awkward attempts at intimacy. I think that's a great idea. I would encourage that. And for those of you who are looking at getting married, I would encourage you to do that. Thank God for that gift. Praise Him for the gift and the wedding present you're about to unwrap. Some people dread the loss of their youthful vigor or fear their sex life will become boring and empty through the repetition over the years. This need not be the case. Again, a positive outlook toward what God has designed to endure over the years is going to be very helpful in giving God glory and giving spouses delight in a treasured marriage. People growing in love find that side of their relationship provides more meaning and enjoyment over time. That's a positive outlook. There's also, there are also negative influences. The factors which inhibit physical responses to each other are varied but can include fear, hostility, negative attitudes about sex, poor communication about what is or what is not enjoyed, shame and guilt from previous experiences, lack of knowledge, and excessive self-consciousness. 
Negative feelings can be easily vented through the very act God designed to bring two people together as one flesh. Sex can be used to frustrate, disappoint, reject, or pay back the spouse whether or, no, whether or not both parties are aware of the source. When we show unbelief in God, His work in our spouse, or the promises and sufficiency of Scripture to tangle up our heart, we begin to believe it's lies. Lies like, I can't enjoy sex. Lies like, things will never change. Lies like, the past will always bother me. Lies like, I can't meet their expectations. I can't meet your expectations. Lies like, I can't please them. I can't please you. Lies like, you can't understand me. It's impossible. Lies like, you can't meet my needs. Lies like, you don't know how hard it is to get over my past. If we approach any area in our lives with a fear or dismal unbelief or belief that God is not sufficient to help us, then we will live substandard Christian lives devoid of joy and devoid of the ability to delight in the gifts that God gives us. If this is our situation, if this is your situation, then I want to encourage you to prayerfully ask God to help you find good biblical counsel for the good of your marriage, spouse, and God's glory. The promise of Isaiah 41.10 is not only for Israel, but for all of God's people and for every area of our lives. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will also uphold you by my righteous right hand. How do we resolve difficulties? How do couples resolve difficulties in this part of their life together? Well, first, we always want to encourage complete, dependable, and accurate medical information. You'd be surprised at how many times you hear opinions of people who are totally surprised that God designed us in this way or that way. <laughs> but it's true. People can go through their whole life with absolute misconceptions. Obtain good, accurate medical information, especially if you're having difficulties. Number two, have a biblical view of sex. A biblical view of sex. I referred to the Hebrews 13 passage. The marriage bed and the marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. There is a special sweetness in that intimacy that God honors. It's part of his design. God gives us three principles. Three principles about the enjoyment of physical intimacy in marriage. I'd like you to turn in your copy of God's Word, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
I'm going to read it as you're turning there. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife also to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There are three very important principles here. First, the principle of need. The principle of need. Scripture tells us, not as a suggestion, not as a suggestion, but as a command to meet our mate's sexual needs because we both have those needs. When husband and wife take care of that concept and do everything they can to meet their partner's needs, they are sure to develop a deep form of intimacy and an exciting relationship. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2, Paul described the protective purpose of this passage, which was to protect against sexual immorality. Instead of focusing on ourselves, a treasured marriage for disciples of Christ focuses on both delighting to serve the needs of each other, not just selfishly focusing on my needs. There is a true need, a principle of need. Second, the principle of authority. Look at the passage. Look at the passage here. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Um, most of you know that I had a heart attack and bypass when I was 38. I always thought it would be funny to either get a piercing that had a zipper tab on the top of the scar or a tattoo of a zipper tab. I made the suggestion to Kim and she said, oh, you're not doing that. <laughs> That's morbid. I don't have such an item on my body. And why? Because my wife has authority over my body. And that's just with regard to my warped sense of humor. Scripture tells us that when we marry, we actually relinquish the right to our own body and turn that authority over to our mate. This amazing principle is certainly an indication of the lifetime scope of marriage as God designed it. It's also equally applied to both husband and wife. Obviously, it requires the utmost trust. People should understand this principle before they decide to marry. For on the day that they wed, in God's sight, they relinquish the right of control over their own body we quickly learn that one of the easiest ways to hurt our mate is to withhold physical affection. But we do not have this right. And if you've been guilty of doing that, if you're guilty of doing that now, brother or sister, you need to repent. To put it bluntly, the wife's body now belongs to the husband and the husband's body belongs to the wife. That means we must trust Christ to enable us to love our spouse's body and care for it as our own. Thus, the unreasonable demands are totally excluded. Again, the unreasonable demands 
are totally excluded? Are we devoted to the rights of our beloved? So, the principle of need, the principle of authority, and the principle of habit. Look at the text again. Scripture, this passage and others, tell us that we must not cheat our partner by abstaining from the habit of sex except by mutual consent for a limited time. Why? Because if we break this commandment, look at the text, so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If we break this command and defraud our partners by withholding habitual sexual lovemaking, we are opening our marriage to satanic attack and temptation. Our Creator knows this. This is why He tells us to participate actively and regularly in physical intimacy with our marriage, within our marriage. Self-centeredness in sexual marriage matters is common because apart from the activity of grace, we are self-centered in everything we do. If we deprive our spouses of intimacy or pursuing selfishness in this aspect of our relationship, God will get our attention. And we should not be surprised when our wounded or neglected spouse shuts down, withdraws, or resorts to manipulation. I say that again. If we deprive our spouses of intimacy or we are guilty of pursuing selfishness in this aspect of our relationship, God will get your attention. And we should not be surprised when our wounded or neglected spouse shuts down, withdraws, or resorts to manipulation. That's a biblical view of sex. Let's talk about the right approach. Let's concentrate on the essentials first. Physical and emotional closeness. To develop a real, true, and vibrant closeness, you and I need to view our intimate lives in the context of our total relationship. Intimacy without signs of love is sure to create resentment, not response, from our partners. So, avoid criticism. Avoid criticism. One thing that will always hinder emotional closeness is criticism. It's not our responsibility to lecture our partner on the biblical commands that we've just discussed or to insist upon obedience to them. If your mate disappoints you, you must be careful to not say by word or action anything that will make him or her feel like a failure. Romance. Husband, begin showing your wife in other ways that you love her. And I see wives elbowing their husbands right now. That's okay. <laughs> Give her romantic caresses at time when you're not preparing for physical intimacy. Admiring glasses, gl glances, not glasses, glances. Affectionate pats, smiles, and a wink across the room. Small attentions. I tell her she's a very special person in your sight. Wife, you can also do the same for your husband. Before the house is warm, the fire must be stoked. I'm going to say that again. Before the house is warmed, 
the fire must be stoked. And you use that Solomonic poetic imagery as you see fit. That's free. I'm just going to get throw that out there. Words are particularly important. Husbands, one sentence of criticism directed at your wife in any area can well drive away any desire she would otherwise feel toward you that day. On the other hand, one sentence of praise and approval, the more specific the better, is going to do wonders for her in your sense of closeness in the relationship. Plan in advance, affectionate time together, and then clear all distractions and interruptions as you build a relaxed, pleasant, and romantic atmosphere. Some men think that working hard is the antidote to sloth, but forget that the drain on time and energy can leave no room for regular romance of their wives. Words of praise, of adoration, and how your beloved is the only one in your eyes worthy of attention is the mortar to the edifice of lasting marital pleasure. Let's turn to Song of Solomon. Chapter 4. Let's look at some lines of praise here. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. And men, I heartily, strongly encourage you to say these things to your wife. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep which have come up from their watering place, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is beautiful. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of Israel, built with layers of stones, on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the warriors. Your two breasts are like two twins, twins of a gazelle, that graze among the lilies. And don't forget the other passage that says, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon overlooking Damascus. <laughs> so men, I want you to go home this afternoon and I want you to repeat these words of love to your beloved. Even if you're single, you can say these words and stop there. Just, that's it, just stop right there. That's it, no more. Now, obviously, there's poetic imagery here, not something that we would repeat. Kevin is thinking, how am I going to say this to my wife? Her hair is like a flock of goats. What is, what is that? <laughs> think about, again, an agrarian society, and think about goats or sheep that are descending from a hill. And as they do... They're not walking, clip-clop, clip-clop. They're bouncing, right? And her hair is wavy. It's beautiful. That's what it's referring to. A slice of pomegranate. You know? A little ruddiness. Beautiful, delicate appearance. The neck, a long neck was a sign of beauty. A Romanesque nose. Not a teeny tiny button nose, but a larger nose. And those of you women who are given that gracious gift by your creator, Song of Solomon, it's written. 
in honor of your nose. And it was a sign of beauty. So you might find more words that are more appropriate for who you are. But I do want to show you a picture of this radishing beauty here. And I do want to pay attention, want you to pay attention to this literal interpretation. Notice the red on her temple where the pomegranate slice lies. Notice the goats that are descending from her head. Notice, if you will, this beautiful Tower of Lebanon overlooking Damascus in the middle of her face. Or the lips that drip honey and that Winnie the Pooh is collecting. Or this tower that is surrounded by shields. Well. Okay, men, it's your turn. And ladies, you can certainly use some of these words to praise your beloved. My beloved is dazzling and reddish, outstanding among 10,000. He's outstanding. There's no one else that you would rather be affiliated with. No one else that you'd rather share your marital bed. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. So hold it. Are they gold or are they black? What's, is he a blonde? Is he, what? His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk. They're not red. They're not, you know, bloodshot. And perched in their setting, his cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of herb spices. He even smells good. Which is a challenge for some of us. So. His lips are like lilies dripping with drops of myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with topaz. His abdomen is panels of ivory covered with sapphires. His thighs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, you daughters of Jerusalem. Now you're, ladies, you may not be able to say everything about your man, like this. His belly may not be set apart like this, panels of ivory covered with sapphires. His belly might be more like Mammoth Cave. But you can praise him in certain ways, can't you? You can delight in the body of your beloved men and women in ways that are appropriate for you. And here is God's Wonderful example for us of the communication that is wholesome and pure and building up for the relationship between husbands and wives. Wives especially need a romantic prelude to intimacy. The desire and need for emotional connection is an essential component complementing physical closeness and intimacy completing the cycle of mutual appreciation and meaningful appreciation with their husbands. We are created with a very human need for loving and close personal contact expressed by warm, gentle, and soft, timely care. Every once in a while, men, send your wife a note without reason. Flowers. No reason. Do it. As a matter of fact, if you do indeed send your wife a note, a love note for no reason, you might want to smell, send along some smelling salts because she'll probably faint. Yeah. But yeah, help her wake up. Another point here. 
under the right approach. Don't jettison, un, don't jettison your relationship with unrealistic expectations or previous experiencing. Focusing on our spouse instead of our demands can eliminate much frustration and ease the performance stress that can be one of the little foxes that ruined the vineyard. Again, that's another quote from Song of Solomon. If one or both spouses have had previous experience outside of their marriage, it is essential to leave all memory and preoccupation outside of your experiences with your spouse. This is especially true where there has been there have been bad experiences which may take time, tenderness, and sensitivity to eradicate before there can be a united mutual enjoyment of God's gift between husband and wife. Preferences must be acceptable and communicated to both rather than forced. I'm going to read that again. Preferences must be acceptable and communicated to both rather than forced. That's all I'm going to say on that. Next. Let's be redemptive in our communication. Be redemptive in our communication. There are 171,476 words in the English language, including romance, wedding, lives, bliss, and nuptials. The Bible has 773,476 words in it, the King James Version, or the Authorized Version, however you call it, including love, husbands, wives, and joy. The average person speaks 15,942 words on an average day, many to a partner. A book on marriage contains about 90,000 words. A sermon on marriage, about 5,000 words. A gospel track on marriage, 2,000 words. A traditional wedding ceremony, about 1,150 words. You won't enjoy the marital joys if you're bringing lots of baggage into the bed. Here are 15 words that used often enough and sincerely meant will help clear the fog of war. How can I help you? I accept you as you are. I am so happy I married you. I'm so happy you married me. I forgive you. I love you. I need you. I was wrong. You were right. You might want to use those smelling salts if you... I'm sorry. Please. Please forgive me. Tell me about it. Thank you. What do you think? What would I do without you? You are so beautiful. You are so handsome. Well, let's talk about what to do for the next week, shall we? For unmarried individuals, are you keeping yourself pure? When I meet with unmarried men, even men that are engaged, I always encourage them, if you're going to kiss your beloved, let it be like a kiss to a hot iron and keep the tongue firmly clenched behind the teeth. 
Let's not arouse passions. Are you keeping yourself pure and keeping your life of any keeping your life free of any compromise which will impact you should you get married? There are many women who have hindrances in the marital bed because they and their husband were not practicing purity. And if you have slipped, it's possible to stop and reset. Ask yourself, single person, how has the world shaped your understanding of human sexuality compared to what biblical principles we've covered in this lesson? Number two, consider where you are tempted to fall short of God's principles in 1 Corinthians 7 regarding need, authority, or habit. Are you being honest with yourself and your spouse in these areas? Talk to each other about ways you need to grow. And then let's prepare for next week. If you're married, ask yourself if your preferences drive your expectations of intimacy or if you're sincerely looking to delight and give joy to your spouse. Is there anything in your thinking or behavior which is creating an impediment to a healthy and grateful response to God for this gift between you and your beloved? And next week, we'll be talking about one of the pleasant results of intimacy. Children.